Hi, my name's Peter and I usually attend the 6pm service. I'm going to be doing the Bible reading this week. There are two passages. The first one is Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 to 18. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. The second reading is from Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 to 17. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Hey everybody, well as Heidi has said, today we're thinking about the topic of fasting and I'm really excited to be thinking about this with you. When we were mapping out this sermon series, I put my hand up to be the one to preach about fasting, not because I'm any sort of expert, but precisely the opposite, uh, because confession time, fasting has not been a major part of my Christian life whatsoever. And so I wanted the opportunity to spend time in the scriptures thinking about this. I'm excited to, to share what I've learned with you. And I particularly wanted to do this because of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 16, speaking to his followers. He says to them, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do and so on and so forth. It's not if you fast. Jesus' expectation is that we as his followers would fast. And that's something that I wanted to wrestle with and I'm looking forward to, to wrestling with, uh, about that with you. Uh, what I've essentially discovered this week and learnt is that the Bible portrays three main reasons why we ought to fast, three types of fasting, if you like. And so we're going to kind of survey the Bible and look at those three kind of categories. And then essentially what I'm going to do is I'm going to push that ball into your court for you to decide what you're going to do with it. So let's pray for God's help. Uh, Lord God, thank you that you have created food for the body and the body for food. Thank you so much for all the delicious food that we get to enjoy and eat. Thank you that in our part of the world, we very rarely uh, actually go hungry. Uh, but Lord, as we come to your word today and we hear you calling us to be hungry for you, we pray that you'd help us to understand this thing which seems so foreign to us in so many ways. Please keep us humble as we come to your word. Help us to learn and to be receptive to what you're saying in it. We do pray that as a result of today, we might align our lives more closely with that vision of the good life that the Lord Jesus presents for us. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, I think the, the place for us to start our journey in fasting uh, today is actually in, in Luke chapter 4. 
Uh, Luke chapter 4 is the story of Jesus' uh, temptation, his, his testing in the wilderness. Uh, you might remember the devil leads him out and makes all these offers to him and Jesus uh, resists. Uh, that, that story in Luke chapter 4 happens immediately after, if you remember, Luke chapter 3. No surprises there. What happens in Luke chapter 3? Well, it's the baptism of Jesus. It's that moment where the Father speaks about the Son from heaven, that voice from heaven, and, and the Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. It's this incredible kind of uh, defining moment at the start of Jesus' life. It's this thing that is going to shape the trajectory of the next few years of Jesus' life as his ministry begins. And the very next thing that Luke records for, that Jesus does in Luke chapter 4, after this significant moment, is he heads out into the wilderness and he fasts for 40 days, which is very strange. And if you're someone who's just familiar with the Bible, you've read you know, Luke's gospel a bunch of times, you might skip over just how, how odd that is. Uh, you might be somebody who just thinks, oh, well, that's Jesus. You know, he does things like that. And, you know, sure. But why does Jesus do that? Why, why would anybody do that after, you know, such a moment like that, that kind of kickstarts this next chapter of Jesus' life? Why then withdraw yourself and fast? Well, it's important to understand what's going on there. It's important to understand that Jesus is not the first kind of major figure in Israelite history, and not the first prophet to, to do that, to withdraw and to fast for 40 days after having kind of a powerful encounter with God, what, what one author calls a sacred moment. Jesus is not the first person to do that. The first person actually to do that was Moses, uh, back in the book of Exodus. Uh, you might remember Exodus chapter 34. Um, this is the first time that fasting is mentioned in the Bible. Um, Moses has the mother of all encounters with God, this incredible sacred moment where he's up Mount Sinai and the Lord passes in front of him and declares who he is, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Moses has this direct encounter with God and then as a response to that encounter, being in the presence of God, as he receives the Ten Commandments, it says that he fasted. He didn't eat bread or drink water for 40 days. The prophet Elijah actually does the same thing. Uh, in 1 Kings chapter 19, if you know the story of Elijah, Elijah was a prophet in a time when a lot of Israel were being unfaithful to Yahweh. They had turned and were worshipping Baal. And uh, Elijah has this showdown with the prophets of Baal on top of Mount Carmel, uh, this powerful encounter where God shows up and displays his power for all people to see and proves that he is the one true God. And after this incredible encounter, which Elijah is sort of right at the center of there in 1 Kings 19, Elijah retreats to the wilderness and we read that he fasts 40 days and 40 nights. And then comes Jesus. And so just think about this. If, if those were the only three stories we had in the Bible about fasting, what would we conclude on the basis of those stories? It's interesting, isn't it, that in, in Luke chapter 4, we don't read about Jesus going out into the wilderness and you know, praying and asking for anything. Right? 
You don't read that in the Elijah story or in the Moses story either. They're not heading out into the wilderness so that they can dedicate themselves to fasting and praying, asking for something in particular. There's nothing particular, it seems, that any of these three people are trying to accomplish with this fast. Which might be surprising to you because I think that the default kind of understanding of what fasting is about is that it's something that you do when there is like a, you know, a super critical prayer request. Uh, you know, that, that fasting is like an, a results-oriented activity. You, you fast because there's something that you desperately want God to do, something you want to see him give to you. But that's not at all what is going on in these stories. In fact, it's just the opposite, right? They, all three of these people have a powerful experience of God's presence in their lives, this sacred moment that is marked by an awareness of God's powerful, holy presence. And it's this life-shaping, transforming experience. And then you see for all three of these people that fasting is a response to that sacred moment. You know, there are some times when after uh, someone responds to a sacred moment like this with fasting, sometimes in the Bible where there is a result of that, and we're going to look at some of those examples today, but I think that the heart of fasting in the Bible, you see, is not about people using fasting to try and get something particular from God. Rather, fasting is about having a, a physical, embodied experience trying to process what has just happened to me and what I sense that God is up to in my life. Now, as you come to this topic of fasting, there is no one passage in the Bible, unfortunately, that tells you, you know, the precise meaning behind it, the purpose of it. And so what you've got to do is you've got to kind of look at all of the examples in the Bible and figure out what's going on and then think about what those things mean. And that's what I've been doing this last week. And broadly speaking, I think that fasting falls into three kind of buckets. There are three main types of fasting. And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to look at them. We're going to try and think about the reasons behind fasting. And what I think we're going to see is that fasting is a really significant, a really meaningful practice. Now, just so you know <laughs> what my end goal is with this, I'm hoping that as we, as we do this survey of the Bible, as we see the value of fasting, I'm hoping that you might want to give fasting a try if you don't already. <laughs> That's the bar I'm trying to clear today. That's what I'm hoping as a result of this we can all leave and think about and desire to do, to, to give fasting a try. So uh, let's have a think about the first kind of fasting that we find in the Bible, the first kind of reason for fasting. And it's what I'm going to call... Uh, if, at the defining moment fast. Um, and we've kind of seen that with the Jesus and the Moses and the Elijah fast. They're all kind of examples of this type of fast. But let me give you another example and we can flesh it out a little bit more. Uh, let's have a look at Acts chapter 13 uh, from verses 2 to 3. This is uh, talking about the church in Antioch. Um, church in Antioch, Acts chapter, two, uh, Acts chapter 13, verse 2. While they were worshipping the Lord... And fasting, interesting that fasting is just part of what this local church does, but worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed hands on them and sent them off. Um, now, we're not told exactly 
how this happens here, but somehow the Holy Spirit has begun to kind of influence this community or the you know people in this community uh, so that it's become clear that Paul and Barnabas are being set apart by God and that they have this whole new chapter of their lives that's about to open up, uh, that they're heading towards a crossroads, if you like, this defining moment. And they're about to start this journey with God. And so what is the response of this community when they become aware of this? Well, their response is they fast, right? And then they get sent off. They become aware of God's influence and and God's involvement in this life-defining moment. And then they fast. And actually, Acts chapter 13 here, this is one of the defining moments in church history. Uh, This is the beginning of an incredible missionary journey, a church planting explosion. There is a remarkable result that happens after this fast. Lots of churches are planted. Many people come into the kingdom of God. But, you know, were they praying and fasting trying to get that result? Well, it sure doesn't seem like it, does it? It it seems like they'd just become aware that God had somehow marked out these two people and that he was doing something special in their lives. And so, well, how do you respond to that type of thing? You stop eating for a day, apparently. (laughs) Which, you know, might sound counterintuitive to us. Because I wonder what would we likely do in that scenario? You know, if God was intervening in your life and and taking your life in a, a completely new direction, maybe he is doing something like that in your life at the moment. Maybe some doors are opening and some doors are closing what do you do in those situations? We would probably say, oh, we should you know, pray about it. We should journal about it. We should talk to a friend about it, something like that. Well, the church in Antioch choose not to eat for 24 hours. <laughs> God is involved in their lives in this new dramatic way, changing the course of their lives. And so they fast. So let's just, let's just unpack this and, and, and kind of connect the dots here. Why would that be the appropriate kind of response to seeing God do something dramatic in people's lives like this. Well, do, it, do a little thought experiment with me. Uh, today, if you're watching this on Sunday, it's Sunday the 7th of June 2020. Can you tell me what you're going to be doing on the 7th of June 2021? 12 months exactly to this day from now. Do you know what you're going to be doing on that day? No, of course you don't. You have no idea. You might have some you know, rough idea, but that'll get thrown out the window. You know, If 2020 has taught us anything, it's don't make plans. Uh, we have no idea what we will be doing this day, but I'll tell you this, and, and I'm no prophet, but I can tell you with certainty, basically, that you will eat a meal on that day. You will eat food, and you, know, you will probably sleep as well. Those are two things that you will probably do on the 7th of June, 2021. And like, there's very few things, actually, that you can know for sure that you are going to do every single day of your life. That list of things is very small, but eating is one of them. It's just a, a universal routine thing that you do. And actually, if you don't have access to food for a day, you become very aware of that, don't you? That you, you don't have food to eat. And so just, just think about what a bold interruption it is to voluntarily say to yourself, I'm not going to eat for 24 hours. Like, that is not a natural thing to do. (laughs) That is completely interruptive to your life. It's choosing to do something interruptive to your life, but it seems like that's what's happening here. These kind of sacred moments, they come as divine interruptions, which drastically reorient the course of these people's lives. And so what is the appropriate way to respond? Well, apparently it's not to eat. It's this kind of way of 
internalizing and embodying this interruption, right? It would make you so conscious of God's intervention in your life. It would make you hyper aware that God is doing something in your life because you can't just turn off that hunger, right? It's there all the time. And now you might think, well, look, if God was going to do something drastic in my life, the first thing that I'd rather do is, you know, I'd just rather pray. Like not eating for a day, that sounds like really inconvenient, you know, like I, and I understand that kind of temptation because I feel it too. But that tendency that we have to respond to what God is doing in our lives in a non-physical way, in, a, in you know, just an intellectual kind of a way, doesn't that show us that we have this kind of divide that we often fall into where we think that, you know, my spiritual life, like it's, it's, in my, in, it's internal, it's my mind, my thoughts, my heart. But well, like what I do with my body, well, that's just, you know, it's another thing altogether. But obviously, you know, we shouldn't have a division like that, should we? Because our bodies are spiritual. Uh, you know, the, the inner dimension of ourselves and the, the outer dimension, they're just kind of totally woven together. That's part of being human. And so in the Bible, when God interrupts your life, the natural thing for you to do is to embody that interruption. Now, I think there's another kind of reason behind this uh, choice to fast when, when you experience one of these sacred moments. And I think you see it a little bit in the story of Jesus fasting in the wilderness again. Because uh, remember when Jesus is fasting there, the devil comes to him and tempts him. And Jesus responds to the devil by quoting Deuteronomy 8. He says, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Uh, in other words, you know, fasting is a way of reminding yourself that you are frail as a human. Because the truth is we often go about our, our plans in life, right? We make plans about where we're going to go and what we're going to do. And then things happen which throw us off course. You know, I wasn't planning on getting diagnosed with that. I wasn't uh, planning on that person leaving my life. I wasn't planning on whatever, right? But that happens. And, and we get reminded in those moments that actually we have very little control over our lives whatsoever. Those moments wake us up to our frailty, the fact that we don't have ultimate control over our lives and what happens in them. And fasting is a way of embodying that frailty because if you don't eat for a long time, you're conscious right, of how your entire existence depends on things outside of yourself to keep you alive. And that is a good, God-glorifying thing to be reminded of, uh, you know, especially in those kind of big life-at-the-crossroads kind of moments. And, and that's part of the reason for fasting in these moments. And look, that's probably a handful of the examples, the 30-odd examples in the Bible of fasting. Just a handful of them would be this type of life at the crossroads, um, divine interruption kind of moments. Almost all of the uh, other examples in the Bible of fasting kind of fit into this second category. And that is what I'm going to call the, the repentance fast. Um, now, I'll give you an example of this. Have a look at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, this is uh, 1 Samuel chapter 7 is after the Israelites had been worshipping um, other gods for a period of time. Uh, and, and I'll read to you from verse 2. Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, If you're returning to the Lord with all your hearts... Then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourself to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you 
out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. And we might think, oh, cool, like that's that story is over. Good. They were confronted with their sin. They repented. But the, notice that the story is not over here. There's more actually that needs to happen in this story. So keep reading verse 5. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. Uh, when they'd assemble at Mizpah, uh, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. And on that day, they fasted and they confessed, We've sinned against the Lord. So, what's going on here? Well, I think it follows a kind of a similar pattern to that previous pattern of fasting. These people are, are kind of living their lives, making their choices, thinking that they're fine. But then, for whatever reason, they have these moments of conviction, maybe through the word of a prophet, maybe through reading the scriptures, and, and, and their consciences are awakened, and they realize that what they've been living for, the way they've been treating others, that, that that's wrong, that it's sinful. And, and the Bible says that actually when you wake up to that fact, how should you respond? Well, in lots of cases, part of the response is that you fast. When you become aware of sin... It's actually another one of those sacred moments where God is like messing with your life. He's waking you up. Now, that, that is super uncomfortable to come face to face with, isn't it? But it is an act of grace because if we can own that, own our sin in that moment, and if we can turn to God and to ask for his mercy, well, his promise is to forgive us and to change us. It is a sacred moment for a human to finally realize, you know, I'm, I guess I'm not God. <laughs> I guess I don't get to define good and evil in that part of my life. You know, I need, I need to let God define those terms. That's a moment of, of openness to God. And part of the repentance process in that is fasting. So again, let's connect the dots. How is, how is fasting the natural, appropriate thing to do when we realize our sin? Well, there is that kind of interruption aspect to it again you know one moment we're thinking i thought my life was fine and now we've come to realize oh my gosh it's not fine and so again i kind of embody that interruption uh, by fasting but i actually think that there's another kind of meaning to the fasting in this mode uh, i want you to have a look uh, at joel chapter 2 uh, in joel chapter 2 we kind of see this this way uh, that uh, fasting is to take on a special meaning in repentance here uh, let's read from Joel chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. Um, the, prophet says, uh, through the, Lord, the Lord says through the prophet, Even now, declares the Lord, uh, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Right? What Joel is doing there is he's connecting fasting to weeping and mourning. Now, um, if you've ever had the experience of, of not eating, uh, do people in your life tend to notice that you've uh, you know, skipped a few meals? Uh, almost universally, the answer will be yes, right? <laughs> because you become irritable. You become cranky when you skip meals. You know, if you've ever seen any of those Snickers commercials, we know that they're true. We know that you are, you are not yourself when you're hungry, right? Not eating sucks <laughs> because we, we were made to eat. Food was made as a gift from God. And not eating is doing something which not just brings inconvenience, but it brings discomfort and it brings grief into our lives. By, by not eating, you are intentionally choosing to do something to bring grief to your body. And Joel's point there is, yeah, exactly. 
uh, you know, when you become aware of your sin, it would be wrong to just kind of glibly like turn to God, you know, with a shrug and, you know, I guess it's time to turn over a new leaf or whatever. Like that would be an inappropriate way to deal with your sin when you become aware of it. There, there ought to be weeping. There ought to be mourning. Our hearts, Joel says, ought to be rent. And so fasting actually helps us to have that right attitude. Now, to be clear, this is not about you know, punishing your body. Putting your body through grief in fasting, it, it doesn't get rid of your sin. Only Jesus can do that. Now, the grief that you are supposed to feel is over your sinfulness and the brokenness of your own heart. Uh, the, the fact that you thought that was an okay way to live, fasting is an appropriate embodiment of the grief as you realize the horror of that way of living. And this form of fasting, is connect, it is connected to a result, to a, to a particular result. And that result is actually never in doubt. There's no question of whether this result will happen. Because as Joel says, when we turn back to God in repentance, God promises to be gracious and compassionate to you. And so again, perhaps this is a type of action that you need to engage in today. Uh, if God is convicting you of sin, if, if you've had one of those sacred moments in your life, then perhaps you ought to fast and confront your sin, feel that grief and repent and turn to God for mercy. It would be a valuable thing to do. So the last bucket, lastly, um, there's lots of examples in the Bible that fit into this third kind of category of fasting as well. And that's what I want to call uh, kind of the heartache fast. Um, this is in, in the Bible when you see something calamitous happening, uh, something calamitous happens to you or to someone you know or something out there in the world, then sometimes the right way to respond to that is fasting. Uh, you know, sometimes an event takes place which is so grievous that the only thing for you to do is to kind of cease all normal operations in your life. It happens a bunch of times in the Bible, for example, when one of King David's sons is on his deathbed, David fasts. Uh, in the book of Esther, when you know worship of Yahweh is banned on a national level, the Jewish people all fast, calamitous kind of thing. Uh, in the book of Nehemiah, when he hears about the devastation of Jerusalem, he fasts. You know, these, these are all kind of moments where you come face to face with the reality that this world is just not as it should be. And your heart aches for something better. It aches for God to bring his kingdom and for all of that pain to end. In those kind of moments, you fast. And, and I suspect that fasting like that is something actually which we were all a little bit familiar with, at least. You know, if you've ever experienced the death of a loved one or... You know, you've observed some terrible wickedness or injustice that you see on the news, which breaks your heart. You know, you may not have to work very hard to imagine that this week. It's, it's natural in those moments when our hearts hurt to stop eating because we're so troubled and we long for something better. And so our, our attention and our appetite is diverted away from our stomachs. You know, if you've, if you've ever been through a bad breakup, you will know that feeling where you just you can't eat because of the emotional pain. And so choosing, deliberately choosing not to eat when you come face to face with calamity, really what's going on there is it's about putting your stomach where your heart is. You know, it's saying, yes, my heart aches for this thing. 
And I want my stomach to ache too. So that the, that feeling that I feel is given an intensity and an even greater kind of longing. Now for Christians, this third type of fast is often connected to one particular heartache. The fact that we are currently separated from the Lord Jesus. So flick with me back to chapter 9 of Matthew's Gospel. Uh, again, that reading that we had read out for us earlier. When Jesus is asked by um, some people about why his disciples aren't fasting. And see what his response is? How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them and then they will fast. Uh, when I was dating my wife, Catherine, before we'd gotten married, she spent a year living overseas in Germany and I was separated from her, from this one I loved for a whole year. And it was one of the most painful experiences of my life. There is, there is a deep, profound heartache from being separated from someone to whom you should be united and should be close with. You know, Jesus actually expects that being separated from him will be reason for his followers to fast. He expects that our hearts will ache to be back with him and that that longing is going to be, if you like, enacted or demonstrated by our fasting. Uh, this third type of fasting, I think probably more than the other two, it's kind of easy to see how worshipful that would be, how worshipful of an experience. Because fasting like this, fasting out of our heartache for a better world, to be with the one that we love. It's, it's kind of like a parable of Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, right? Philippians 3. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Doesn't fasting show that physically? I hope you can see how, how this would be a really powerful, faith-building, God-exalting activity for us to engage in. It's always struck me in the Sermon on the Mount um, that Jesus says in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, I think hopefully we would all say as followers of Jesus that we do hunger and thirst for righteousness. You know, we long for the appearing of Jesus and for his kingdom. We long for this world to be put right, for, for all of the heartaches to end as we are reunited with our beloved one. We would say that that's true for us, right? But the practice of fasting forces us to ask the question of whether we're actually willing to put our stomachs where our mouths are, whether we truly will hunger for God. That's a question for all of us to wrestle with today, I think. And I, I want to challenge you to think about that question in response today. And I'm not doing that uh, out of, as, as someone who has some great expertise in this area. I'm doing that as someone who recognizes that there's room to grow in this area and recognizes that I think this practice would enrich our lives in a very deep, very significant kind of way. And I would really like to take that journey with you, WBC. So how about it? Why don't we pray? Almighty God, we thank you uh, that you are a God that provides for all that we need. We thank you that so many days of our lives, we never even have to question where our food is coming from. And so our bellies remain full. 
But we pray, Lord, that they might be emptied for you. That we would be hungry for more of you. Hungry to be reunited with you. Hungry to see your work in our lives. And so please would you teach us, Father, to respond instinctively by fasting, by embodying that interruption that you make in our lives for our good, by embodying that grief that we ought to feel over our sin. Please teach us to say no to good things, such as food, for a time, so that we can say yes to better things, yes to you, to being close to you. We ask this for your glory. Amen.